here at Redeemer Alain, and it is good to be with you this evening. We are coming in on the end of our time in 1 Timothy. This is the second to last sermon. So I'll be preaching this week, and then Pastor John will be joining us uh, again in the pulpit. He's with us in person, but he'll be up here in the pulpit next week to bring the book to a close. Uh, With that, let's go to God again in prayer and ask him for help as we look at his word. Lord God, we have so much to be thankful for this evening. Lord, you have given us another time to gather together and worship you. Lord, we thank you for the way that the music team serves us week in and week out, leading us to not only read lines that are true, but to have music and lyrics that correspond with our heart's desires. And Lord, we just thank you that you are a good God in that way. Lord, we thank you for the marriage of Gulwali and Miriam, and we are so thankful, Lord, that you have watched over that couple, that you have brought them together in marriage, and we just give you the thanks and the praise for that. Lord, we thank you for the chance that we have to come to your word and hear from you again. God, you speak to us every time we open this book. And so I pray that you would speak to us again tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last few weeks, as we've been studying 1 Timothy chapter 6, we have been looking specifically at what it looks like to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven while we are here on this earth. We've seen that Christians do not only confess with their mouth their allegiance to the kingdom, they don't only confess that they belong to it, but they live, they confess with their bodies and their actions, they live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven while here on earth. They set their hope on the God who brings the kingdom, as we saw last week. One of the dangers, though, that Christians can face while we live in this world is that we can say that we belong to that kingdom. We can say that we set our hope on that kingdom, but in reality, we actually set our hope on this kingdom, in this world, and we live as if this world were all there was to offer. We can say we set our hope on God, when our lives reveal that our hope is actually placed on this earthly life. When I was reflecting upon this passage this evening that Marnie just read for us, I was reminded of the sad story of the New Testament scholar George Eldon Ladd. Most of you, I'm sure, haven't heard of George Ladd. George Ladd lived from 1911 to 1982. This meant that he grew up And he did New Testament scholarship during a time when in all of the seminaries and the academies of reputation, all the ones that rich parents and aspiring parents would want to send their kids to to study, all those seminaries were teaching what is called liberal theology, a theology that denies the authority of the Bible 
and oftentimes even denies the divinity of Christ. So George Ladd was an evangelical scholar. That is, he believed in the authority of the Bible, and he held to the centrality of the gospel, doing work in that sort of an environment. And his goal as a scholar was to show that he could be at the level of those other liberal scholars, that he could be accepted by them as being just as intelligent, just as scholarly, just as intellectually respectable as they were. Ladd wanted to show that evangelical scholarship could have a place at the table with even the liberal scholars. He wanted to be seen as respectable. Ladd's specialty was in the doctrine of eschatology. For those of you who don't know, eschatology is the study of the last things. And he did amazing work in that discipline. As I led our Bible study this last year through the book of Revelation, I relied upon Ladd. I used his commentary on Revelation. It was helpful. And Ladd was writing books and teaching the church about how we can read our Bibles with faith and study it and see God. He wrote books with titles such as The Blessed Hope, The Coming of the Kingdom, and The Presence of the Future. And yet, while he was writing books with those sort of titles, titles focused on the future glory of the kingdom of heaven, in many ways, Ladd was living his life with his eyes set on this earth. Ladd was obsessed with his scholarly reputation. He wanted to be seen as respectable. And this led to a marriage that was falling apart, a drinking problem, and a neglected family. A pastor who studied under Ladd tells us that Ladd was almost undone emotionally and professionally by a critical review of Jesus and the kingdom, one of his books. When it, when it wasn't received well by the scholars he was seeking to please, emotionally undone. And when his New Testament theology, published later in life, was a stunning success ten years later, he walked through the halls of the seminary shouting and waving his $9,000 royalty check. Eventually, Ladd would spend the rest of his life in dark depression and would look back on his time as a New Testament scholar and say that it was a fool's dream. Why would someone who spent their entire career, who studied and studied and studied and wrote and wrote and wrote about the hope of Christ's kingdom, why would a person who spent their entire career respond in that way? Respond as if $9,000 was a smashing success and it showed that he was valuable. Or, when his work wasn't received well, he's devastated. He's crushed. He's emotionally undone. Why would someone who wrote about Christ's kingdom respond in that way? Because at least to some degree, George Ladd was living for this world. He had actually set his hope on something other than God. He set his hope on the approval of his colleagues or the success of his books. 
and the object of his hope was uncertain and faulty, and it sent him into a dark depression. Now, I, I bring up Lad not because Lad is exceptional in this, not because he's the unique option that we can all point at. I bring up Lad because I actually think Lad is quite normal in this, that you and I have a lot in common with someone like that. We may not write scholarly books for liberal theologians, but we live to please our bosses. We may not shout and wave our $9,000 royalty checks, but we set our hope on the next paycheck. And we love the comfort and the money that it brings us. We may confess Christ's kingdom with our lips while actually setting our hope in this life. And if we do so, we will only be disappointed and miss out on that which is truly life. Our passage this evening calls us to live for God, not for this world. Live for God and for God's reward. Paul's specifically writing to those who are earthly rich, those who are wealthy in this life. But what he says applies not just to them or to us, but to every Christian, regardless of our finances. And we're going to look at two points from our text. We're going to look at, if I can get this working here, maybe not. We're going to look at set your hope on God and take hold of that which is truly life. So the first point that we see is the call to set your hope on God. Look at verse 17. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Before Paul gets to the positive command, the what I want you to do, he instead gives warnings or negative commands, saying, don't do this. And these negative commands correspond to two temptations that the rich in this life can face, to be haughty and to set their hope on their money. One of the significant temptations that those who have wealth may feel is that their wealth makes them better than other people. That their wealth makes them superior to others. That they can walk around looking down on people because they have money. And therefore, they must be better than others. We think that having wealth says something about our value. This is wrong because it fails to recognize the source of our value. Our value does not come from money. The world thinks that those who have money are more valuable. We even have lines for them. You go to park, and there's the VIP slot. That's not free. <laughs> it costs money. VIP equals those who have money. That's the way the world thinks. But that's not what the Bible teaches. As Christians, we rightly see that our value comes not from what we have, not from what we've earned. Our value comes from God. 
It's not inherent to us. It is given to us. It is bestowed upon us. As human beings, regardless of whether you are wealthy or whether you are poor, you are made in God's image, which means you are inherently valuable. All around the UAE, you go and you see Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed's portrait, or Sheikh Khalifa's portrait, or Sheikh Zayed's portrait. That portrait has value, not because it's a great picture in and of itself. It's not on the finest of materials, or in the best frame that there possibly is, or decorated next to all the best interior decoration. That picture has value because of who it is of, the king. And so you don't defame the king's picture. Every human being is made in the image of God. And so whether you are wealthy or whether you are poor, you have value not because of what you have, but because of whose you are and who you reflect. So it's wrong to be haughty, as Paul says, to be puffed up because we have money. It misses out on what the true source of value is. But it also misses out on where money comes from and where wealth comes from. Wealth and earthly prosperity are themselves a gift. They're a gift from the Lord. They don't come from us ultimately. They're from God. The Bible never says that money is a bad thing. It's not wrong to have money. In fact, we'll see here in a moment, there are a number of things that you can do if you have money that are more difficult to do if you don't have money. So the Bible doesn't say that money is wrong. But that doesn't mean that money isn't dangerous. Because as we saw a few weeks ago, when we discussed how the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, we are the problem. And so when we look at money, it's dangerous to us. When we have money, it's dangerous to us. Our sinful hearts puff ourselves up with our wealth. Our fallen hearts can set our hope on money as our security. And in doing so, earthly wealth becomes more important to us than the God who gave it to us. This has always been a temptation for God's people. You go back to the very beginning of the Bible, and as you read through the Old Testament, you see it has always been a temptation for God's people to look at the gift and to want the gift more than they want the giver himself. When Moses was going into the promised land or preparing the people to go into the promised land. He warned the people of Israel about don't set your hearts on the gifts. Don't be puffed up. And don't want the gifts so much that you're willing to turn to other gods in order to get it. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. My power, the might of my hand. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. 
And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. If Israel were to become haughty and proud and say, by my power I've done this, or if Israel were to treasure the gift more than the giver and go after other gods and the promises they offer, that is a faulty hope. They will surely perish. Their earthly wealth would become a snare to their hard hearts and trap them. And Jesus himself warned about the way that wealth can make it difficult for us to enter the kingdom precisely because it draws our hearts away from God. Jesus said, and was one of the famous passages that you've probably heard, he says, it's more difficult or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the reason for that is because a rich man would be tempted to trust in his riches. He would think that his money can buy him whatever he wants. Because that's the way this world offers. But it's actually hindering him or a barrier for him to overcome in order to enter the kingdom. The earthly rich are called not to set their hopes on their earthly riches because in doing so they would be drawn away from God who is the source of their hope and of their blessings. And that's where Paul goes, again, in verses 17 through 18. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. God is the source of the gift, so he is the foundation of our hope. Money is not a bad thing. After all, Paul says here that God provides us with everything for us to enjoy. It is not wrong for us to enjoy the things that money can buy us. It is not wrong for us to enjoy our money. It is wrong for us to enjoy our money more than God. It is wrong for us to set our hope on money rather than God. It is wrong for us to hoard our money as if that is where our joy comes from. Money is a good gift from God. Money is a terrible God itself. It cannot hold your hopes and dreams. If you're here this evening and you think that all of your problems will be fixed if you only had a little bit more money, and I can tell you that you are certain for disappointment. You are certain for disappointment. All you need to do is look around the whole world and see all the wealthy people, all the people who are rich in the eyes of the world, and you will see that money does not bring joy. It does not bring happiness. It does not bring satisfaction. It brings the appearance of those things. But you can just look at the celebrities, the movie stars, the musicians, sometimes the pastors, that we love and revere. And yet you look at their marriages, you look at their family life, you look at the people who know them best, and you realize, I wouldn't trade that for all the money that they have. 
because they are miserable, miserable people. We cannot set our hope on money because we were not made to live for money. We can set our hope on God, however, because we were made to live for God. The shape will fit into the hole. You were made for God, and so you will be satisfied when you live for God. The Bible says that in God's presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He is the source of blessing. He is the source of happiness. And when you live for him, you will find joy that money cannot provide. And if you're here tonight and you're, you're coming in church only to get more money, you're coming here because either someone's told you a promise that if you come to church, God will bless all your endeavors, or you're here because you think, if I just give a little bit of money to God, then he's going to give me the big job that I want. If that's why you're here, then I'm just going to challenge you to repent. Because in doing that, you're actually here for money rather than the Lord. And in doing so, you miss out on the thing that you need more than anything else. God himself. When we set our hope on God, we are freed from the love of money. To be generous and ready to share with those around us. If you have your Bibles open, you can see that in verse 18. Paul moves immediately from set your hope on God to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. That's connected. Those who set their hope on God will live in this way. Obtaining wealth is no longer our highest priority for us. It's no longer the dream that we're chasing after. It becomes a tool to be used for God's glory. That we can look and see and say, Lord, this is from you. You're the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so I'm going to take what you have and I'm going to ask, what are ways that I can honor you, that I can be happy in you with my money, that I can bless those who are around me? This is so countercultural to life in the UAE. When we set our hope on God, we're able to show that God is our hope, not money. In fact, even our definition of wealth changes. The way we talk about what it means to be rich or what it means to be wealthy becomes gospel-shaped. Paul says that we're to be rich in good works. That's the currency that you want in your bank account. Good works obedience to God. And when we look at our lives and we say, how am I honoring the Lord this last week? How am I loving my brothers and sisters in the church? How am I seeking to reach and pray for and bless those outside the church? How am I living with my wife or my husband or my children, my colleagues or my housemates in a way that honors the Lord? And when we look at that, we see this is pleasing to the God in every area of our lives we count ourselves wealthy. We count ourselves wealthy. And all these activities can be a sort of a diagnostic or a checkup to see whether we are actually setting our hope in this life or in the next. When we examine our lives in light of what Paul calls us to, we can see, does your confession line up with the way that you live? When you look at your life, do you do good to those around you from a pure heart? Or do you do good to those around you 
hoping that they'll do good to you back. That you're trying to bargain your way into blessing through your actions. Do you count others more significant than yourselves, or do you use others for the sake of yourself? When you look at your life, would you say your life is characterized by good works and obedience to Christ? Or is your life characterized by indulgence in sin? Is who you are in public the same person that you are in private? Or do you look good on the outside, while on the inside you are chasing after that which will not lead to life? When you look at the way you spend your earthly money, are you generous and ready to share with those in need? Or do you spend it on yourself? Or do you spend it on your children and hope that they will spend their money on you one day? We can be generous with our kids in a manipulative way because we think that they'll get the good job that'll then support us in our old age. When you look at the way you give, do you give generously to your church? Do you give generously to the work of global outreach to see Christ proclaimed among the nations that have not heard him? Do you give generously to meet physical needs of those around you? Or do you give generously to your hobbies, to your entertainment, to status symbols? If you don't have money, how do you respond when you don't have this wealth? When you don't have money, where does your heart go? Are you trusting the Lord, content in Him? Or are you paralyzed by anxiety, worrying, scheming for ways to get more money? You can set your hope on earthly wealth even if you don't have it. Our hearts are sinful and desperately sick. All of these commands that Paul gives here to the rich can apply to us, and we can look at them and we can say, do these line up with what we confess with our mouth? Are we actually setting our hope on God? Those who hope in God will never be put to shame, the Bible says, and they will not be disappointed. This leads to our second point, taking hold of that which is truly life. Verse 17 again, we'll just read the paragraph again here. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This text shows us the reason why setting our hope on God is the wisest investment that we can make. Riches of an earthly nature are uncertain. They're flimsy. They will not last. But when we set our hope on God, it will endure forever you will possess a heavenly treasure that you will be able to enjoy in Christ's coming kingdom forever. Jesus taught the same thing for us in Matthew 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If our heart is with our earthly treasure, then we will suffer loss. But if our heart is with Christ, then we will enjoy Christ and the treasure and the pleasure that is at his right hand forever. This treasure goes deeper and wider than dirhams, dollars, or gold. It is a treasure of enjoyment of Jesus himself. God, all in all throughout the Bible, says he is the portion of his people. When we live for God in this life, we will have the capacity to enjoy God forever in the future. If you do not enjoy God in this life, you do not want to be a citizen of God's earthly or heavenly kingdom. Why? God is there. God is in the center of that. J.C. Ryle, an uh, English preacher, would say, heaven is a holy place. And in order to enjoy heaven, we must enjoy holiness on earth. If you do not live for God now, you will not enjoy God in the future. But if you live for God now, you will find that your heart will be opened. Your capacity for his pleasure will be deepened. Your delight in him will be widened. And you will be able to love him, be satisfied in him, delight yourself in him for all eternity. You will have a heart big enough and full enough to be happy in our happy king. And this promise of future gain, of looking to the reward in the future, is what allows for us to not set our hope in this life but to be able to look past this life and store up treasures in heaven. I love how Hebrews 11 puts it. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. Living for the reward of Christ enabled Moses to not store up treasures in Egypt. You can go to Egypt today. Dr. Brenda just went to Egypt. You can go to Egypt and you can see all the pyramids. They're faded. The gold that lined all the walls, it's gone. The beauty, dusty. You can take a picture in front of it, but you would not want that to be your treasure. It will not last. Moses saw through that, and he said, that's not going to last for me. And he looked at Christ, even suffering with Christ's people, and he said, that's what I want, because that is greater wealth for me. I am looking to the reward, living by faith, 
and trusting in Christ for his promise. When we look at the reward of Christ, we're free to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, because we see that in the long run, these things are not really a sacrifice from the perspective of eternity. Now, they are a sacrifice on earth. You have to fight for this. You have a sinful flesh that's pulling you away from God, and you will feel like you're losing at times when you give your money away or when you do a good deed that goes unnoticed. But from the perspective of eternity, you will never regret it. You will never count that loss. It will be gain. In living for the kingdom and storing up kingdom treasure, we take hold of that which is truly life. Now, this is the second time that Paul says this, truly life. He says it earlier in verse 12, when he says, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And as we saw in that passage, taking hold of eternal life flowed from the calling that we have in Christ. We take hold of eternal life because we have been called. We work because God works. And this is the amazing grace of the reward of Christ and where we're going to end this evening. All around us, we have people striving in order to earn heaven. They say prayers. They dress certain ways. They eat certain foods. Some of you in our church may be living in that sort of way, striving in order to earn heaven. And they trust that their good works would outweigh their bad deeds. But that is not true for citizens of Christ's kingdom. If you are a Christian, then the reason why you can take hold of that which is truly life, the reason why you can possess a treasure that will never fade, is because Jesus has purchased it for you. Every eternal reward that is in heaven Every treasure that is stored up in heaven, it has been earned, but it has not been earned by you. It has been earned by Christ. His blood purchases for us a possession for all eternity. His blood gives us the forgiveness of sins that allows us to stand before God forgiven, cleansed, washed, his righteous life enables us to, having been washed, to be clothed with a heavenly status, fit for the kingdom of God. His ascension to heaven enables us to have a mediator and a representative at God's right hand. And then he sends out his spirit to empower us to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You did not earn the Holy Spirit. It's a grace and a gift from Christ. Everything you ever have, if you are a Christian, has been and will be purchased by the blood of Christ. So set your hope on him. When we set our hope on Christ, we will never be disappointed. Earthly riches are only uncertain, but Christ is a sure foundation for our souls. And we can have confidence in the reward 
that he has purchased for us. So let us live for God and live for God's reward. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that in your grace and in your mercy, you have purchased us. We thank you that you have sent us the Spirit so that we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling and take hold of that which is truly life because you are working in and through us according to your good pleasure. And Lord, we pray that we would live for you, honoring you, loving those around us this next week. In Jesus' name, amen.